Is the Bible really the Word of God? Can we trust the Bible? How do we know it is accurate in what it says? Start learning in this episode of Truth in Faith. In our final category section of this series, Why I Am a Christian, we're going to address, Is the Bible True? You see, as Christians, you may believe the Bible, but there are many critics out there who would try and convince you or your children, anyone you know, that the Bible is actually full of errors. It's been edited so many times that we don't even know what Paul or Peter or James actually wrote. In our last episode, we began to talk about how it is the Bible came to be, how it is that it was copied down for generations to come after the original author wrote their letter or book of the Bible? Well, that was part one. We didn't finish it. So in this episode, please join me where we finish how the Bible was written, copied, and transmitted in part two now. I hope this has been helpful to you. For more, please visit truthinfaith.com. Well, the New Testament process, how did that happen? God chose the New Testament authors. They copied it down, much like the Old Testament. Now, here's a big difference in the New Testament, though. This is where our, our stuff will get heavier next week on how to prove the Bible. The difference in the New Testament era is you had widespread distribution, massive widespread distribution. The Old Testament didn't have that as much. It was one mainstream. Uh, the Jews were preserving that. But the, the Christians come along with their New Testament scriptures and what did Jesus say the Great Commission was? Go into all the world and share this good news. They took that serious. And so when it came to the scriptures, they said, this has got to go everywhere. Everybody needs it. They need it in different languages. They need it in different regions. So you have just a massive explosion of the copies of the New Testament. It was written in what was called uh, Koine Greek. That was sort of the common language of the day. Like today, English is the, the language of the business world, they'll say. Well, that was sort of going Greek. Um, even if you were from a different nation, you probably spoke a type of going Greek, and you could conduct business. Then the Old Testament, it though was in Hebrew and Aramaic, New Testament in Greek. Let me give you an example of how this works. Think about the book of Colossians. You can do this with any of the books, but let's just take Colossians. Paul writes Colossians to the church at Colossae. That's an actual city where there's a church. And that's why most of the letters get their name. Ephesians was to Ephesus. Uh, Galatian was to the churches of Galatia. Romans to the city of Rome. Well, they would get this letter from Paul, the apostle. They, they took it. They would read it. They would have their church gatherings, just like Brother Will does. They did similar thing. They would preach it. They would expound it. They would use it to guide their church life. Well, then what, what they would do, though, is they would want to copy that letter. Because, again, the theory was we need the church. Let, let me be simplistic. Let's take Greenbrier because I don't know all the cities from ancient lands. So let's say Paul wrote uh, the, the letter to the, the Greenbrierians or whatever we would be called. Okay, so he writes that letter to the church at Greenbrier. Let's assume there's one church in Greenbrier. And we say, man, the church at Conway needs this, too. Because it, it's from the Apostle Paul, they need it. So we're going to have someone copy that down. 
and then they're going to take it to the church at Conway. Now, what do you think the church at Conway is going to do? They're going to say the church at Greenbrier needs, or uh, Little Rock needs this. And then they're going to say the church at North Little Rock needs it. And then even Little Rock might have a little more resources. They may say, well, we'll also send it north and south. We'll go to Pine Bluff. And so now it'll start doing like that. Here's a sort of a graph example of how this happened. Um, the word autograph means original. So that's the original that Paul wrote, the autograph, the original. It gets sent to the original audience who then copy it, and it's spread, it's disseminated. So you have this larger tree forming getting wider and wider and wider because there's more copies being made of Paul's letter. Does that, does that make sense before we move on? Okay, because this really becomes uh, everything, honestly, when you get to where people make objections about the Bible. They're going to attack this process right here. Um, so, again, I told you earlier an objection was, well, you don't have the originals, you just have copies of the originals, so you can't trust it. That, that's not the case, but it, at face value, that can sound very tricky if you're not sure about how this works. It tricked me up, I'm not going to lie, so, but that's why I want to take a little time here and make sure we understand the process. So, Paul writes Colossians, copied, copied, and then it goes to another area, copied. So you have this tree forming of all these manuscript copies. So you have copies everywhere. Uh, the letters were important to the churches. They wanted to distribute it to other churches. These letters are copied in vast amounts. They keep getting spread around different regions. Now then, let's stop right here and think logically for a moment. Do you see any problems that we could say about this process? Do you see any problems that could arise from this? You're going to have a guy copying, and he went to the bathroom. He come back. He thought he was uh, on this line of sentence, but really he was up here, so he skipped the line, and then he kept going. Well, now then, the church that gets that copy is missing a few words there, and that gets perpetuated. That's an issue. Not to mention false teachers are around. And what do you think they're going to do? They're going to try to slide in there, you know, hey, I have a letter from Paul too, you know. Hey, I have uh, the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Thomas. If you've heard, you haven't heard of Dan Brown, the Da Vinci Code stuff? He's big on that, that we have the lost books of the Bible, uh, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Judas, the Gospel of Peter, and they'll claim this stuff that, well, the, and, and those are real books from history, um, but the claim is, you know, well, look, Peter wrote this, so it should be in there. How come you didn't want it in there? And that gets turned into, well, you didn't want it in there because it has doctrine contrary to your narrative that you wanted to tell the world. So it gets turned into this malicious conspiracy that the church had a conspiracy to try to twist the story of Jesus to be a certain way. I'm going to hopefully prove to you that's not the case, but I just want you to see that's where the attacks usually come from. Is you've got all these copies going about. You don't even really know which ones are right or wrong, and you don't even know which books are right or wrong. You just chose the ones that, that fit your story and you liked it. So there you go. But not, not the case, but just hold on to that, that thought. There were even some people that church history tells us they weren't a false teacher, but they, they loved Paul so much, for example, they would write a letter in honor of Paul. But he might have forgot to say, this is in honor of Paul, and instead he just said, this is from Paul. So then someone gets it and thinks, is this from Paul or not? You know, I'm not sure. So you did have that going on. Now, how do you think, though, we might could determine 
what are the real copies of the originals, the accurate ones, and which ones are the ones with mistakes in it. You compare. Well, more on that in a moment, but that's exactly it. Because of this slide I have here, I capitalize the word great for a reason, because to have all these copies is a phenomenal thing. It's a great thing. As Ricky said, because you get to fact-check everything, because you have so many copies. You're going to be able to see, how come these five don't have these sentences, but these 5,000 do have it? Which one are we most likely to think is the original? The ones that have 5,000 that all say it one way, and the five don't have it. Something happened. It's, now, I've had this said to me before. This is what one professor said. The Bible's problem is it's like playing the telephone game. Do you remember the telephone game? If we were to uh, sit kind of in a semicircle line, and I whisper a sentence in Brother Will's ear that only he can hear and the rest of you can't. I, I say a sentence, whatever it is. Then he's going to tell it to Ricky, and we're going to keep going. And let's say Jimmy's at the end of our chain, and he's going to say the sentence. The telephone game is meant to be funny because the odds are, by the time it gets to the last person, is it 100% word for word exactly the way it was told to the first person? Not typically. So the argument goes, the Bible's like this massive telephone game being played over hundreds of years. Like, as Ricky said, so many people are involved it just doesn't make logical sense that the end result, your Bible, comes anywhere close to matching what the first guys wrote. Because there's so many links in this chain, they're going to get it wrong. Now on the face value, that sounds, okay, you have a point, but here's the problem. This is not at all like the telephone game, and here's why. The telephone game is one lane of transmission. It's one chain of people. Let's say 50 people. And they're going to get some mistakes in there. But what's happening with the Bible, I showed you all that chart. There's multiple chains. There's not one chain from Paul. There's like 50 or 100 chains of Paul. So if this chain says a certain way, but these 10 chains say a different way, well, we're starting to get a picture here. Someone made a mistake in this chain. But these 10 chains are all in agreement. And oh, by the way, I'm telling you things about chain like disagreements and stuff it is not as bad as it sounds it's it's when we look at the data i'm not sure if we'll get there tonight but i have a chart and i have the actual data to show you uh the differences among all the manuscripts is not even statistically significant so just know with confidence i'm, I'm using words like uh, mistakes and disagreements or it is not even statistically significant but more on that later. Just just know that before we leave tonight. I don't want you to walk out here tonight saying, I'm not reading my Bible because he said it has all these mistakes. That's not it at all, okay? Are you okay with understanding kind of how the process worked? Paul wrote it. It's copied down, and Colossians sent it to multiple cities, and from there you get these. You keep getting more streams of copies. Yes, there are some mistakes. Yes, there are false teachers trying to slide in their things. But as Ricky said, what I hope to prove to you, especially after next week, because you have all these copies, you can know for certain, no, this is what it said. This is what Romans said when Paul wrote it, because we have thousands, literally thousands, that say it this way, and only a few that say it this way. That leads into, but how do we know that we can trust that process? 
that I shared with you? How do we know that they didn't make too many mistakes for us to say, well, I just can't have any confidence in my Bible? So some things to know again beforehand. No printing press in their day. Copied by hand. There's another thing that we need to remember. Historical people did not act like us today. Meaning, when an event happened, our, you think about um, a car wreck. Okay, The cops are going to show up and they're going to take statements. They're going to write it down. They're going to get whoever witnessed it. Not necessarily the case in their day. Because again, this is an expensive process. So for them, let's say an event happens. They're going to be more so experts at retelling oral statements. They didn't always have uh, journals or diaries or whatever to write down their thoughts or give a statement. So it doesn't necessarily matter when these things were written so much as it matters how and why they were written. Um, they circulated oral stories from eyewitnesses. But there, the 30 to 60 years then comes into play because if you think about this logically, what is going to start happening to the apostles? I mean, just what happened in the book of Acts? What did the church start to encounter? I mean, did everybody love the church and want them to run for a government office? No. Uh, people were being killed. People were being thrown in jail. There's stories from history of the Romans burning their manuscripts that they copied. They, they wanted, uh, the early emperors wanted to crush Christianity. So, they probably had some copies that we'll never find because the Romans were burning some of them. You have Paul in the book of Acts. Remember, he's hunting Christians as if a bounty hunter. So it, to me, it's logical. He goes in there and maybe he finds a scroll where some, someone had something and he's like, well, that's Christian material. We're going to burn it. But another thing that's happening is these guys are getting old. What happens when you get old? You die. So the apostles are getting old if they're not killed. The eyewitnesses, there's over 500. We talked about that on the resurrection of Jesus. Those guys are getting old or hunted down. So then, 30 to 60 years after Jesus, it became an issue for the church. They said, wait a minute, the first generation of apostles are being hunted down or, and dying off or exiled. The first generation of disciples who are eyewitnesses, they're dying off or being hunted down. The Romans are out for us, so we've got to lock down this testimony. Then you start to see stuff being written down at that point. So there wasn't a sense of urgency is the point I'm trying to make. There wasn't a sense of urgency probably until around that 30 to 60 year mark. Then there's a, a sense of urgency of we've got to copy this down for generations to come. Another thing to consider is not everybody could read in their day. Uh, we take that for granted, I believe. It doesn't mean everybody reads well in our day, but in general, if you've gone through high school to some degree, you're, you can pick up something and read your way through it to one degree or another. You may not read fast, but again, in general, most people in America, right, in modern societies, they, they have some level of reading. Not the case in their day. If you didn't have means in your family, you weren't going to learn how to read. You weren't literate. So again, I want to stress to you, they became masters at oral storytelling and transmitting that information and locking it in because not everybody could, could read in the first place. Um, there's even records of history that you, have, you see in, in some writing some, some poetry, or they're even telling history with almost a rhythm. They're rhyming history um, because, again, they're trying to make it easier for people to remember. That was their issue. I'll give you an example. This is in the Bible. Scholars have traced in the book of Matthew, if you read the genealogy of Jesus' family in Matthew, 
if you've ever noticed this, he skips generations. He does not go line for line all through Jesus' family tree. In fact, he does it in couplets of threes, I believe, and it's seven generations three times. There's more generations than that in Jesus' family history. Scholars believe, well, that was common in their day. Matthew was trying to make the genealogy of Jesus easy to recall. He plucked out people that were significant. Abraham is in there. David is in there. Mary, you know, Joseph. He picked out the important ones that the Jews would have known from their history to connect the dots of, okay, Jesus is from this royal lineage of David. But why didn't he list all of it? Again, I, I stress this to the youth. That bothered me at first, but when you look at it, they weren't concerned with detailed history as much as we are today. They were concerned with how can we make this get the point across to as many people as possible. So we might block out some generations that aren't as significant because we're going to make it in a, a three-phase thing here that rhymes with seven, seven, and seven, so it's easier to, to memorize. That's more how they thought. But how do we know it was copied accurately? All right, I want to share with you all this, and we'll be done tonight, and we'll pick up next week, but it goes into what Ricky said a little while ago. You compare. There's actually a school out there, a field called textual criticism. They compare all these manuscripts, these copies. Here's how this works. These are scholars, these are people who analyze the individual documents, the copies from Paul, Peter, and so on. They analyze all those copies that, that we have from history, from archaeology there, even little fragments. Um, we have, for example, roughly 5,800 Greek manuscripts. Manuscript is a, a full copy. Most of them are complete. There are some non-complete. But think, when I'm saying Greek manuscript, just think in your head, that's a, a Greek copy of the New Testament. We have 5,800 of those from history. Not counting the 10,000 that were translated into Latin and the 9,300 that were in other languages. So we, ha we literally have thousands of manuscripts from history. Then what these guys do, they analyze all of those. They do exactly what Ricky said. They basically just compare them. They look at, well, where are the differences? And then they trace back the differences. Do these manuscripts carry that difference? Then they'll find a part where maybe it doesn't carry the difference anymore. And they know, okay, this difference came into play around this year. Because the manuscripts before it don't have it. And what they're, what they're doing is they're reconstructing the originals. And you can do this. This happens even with texts outside of the Bible. All historians do this with ancient works of history. So this isn't something that Christians made up to be you know, kooky or whatever. This is just a scholarly thing. Um... Now, here's why this matters for us. They analyze these documents. They kind of work backwards. They take all the manuscripts and they put them together and they figure up, you know, these five over here don't agree with these 500 over here. I'm being super simplistic, by the way, but they'll say these five have a different um, spelling, a different word order in the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verse 1. It's not the same as these 500 and then they'll try to work on, well, where do we see the difference pop up? Like what time period? And then they keep comparing all these manuscripts until they can work backwards and say, here's the original because we have 90, literally, I kid you not, I'll share you with the, the data next week. 
literally 99 point something percent all say it this way. So the point less than 1% that disagree, that's not significant at all. And again, more on that next week, but I just want you to leave here with confidence at least when I'm saying there's differences. We're talking 99% agree though. And the other 1% is not even doctrinally significant. It doesn't change doctrine. More on that next week, though. I'll, I'll show you the data on that. Okay, then they compile these manuscripts when they reconstruct the original. They take all of them and put them in a book called a, like an Old Testament text, a Hebrew text, and then the New Testament is a Greek text. They then add footnotes in some of these versions. And in these footnotes, what they'll show someone is, okay, 99% of these translated um, John 3.16 this way. But in five manuscripts that we have, uh, the word here is actually different. It, it's a different word, or maybe the word is missing. So I have two versions of these. These are real today. Um, I have a Hebrew one and a Greek one. I just want you all to see that that's the result of this process. They take all those manuscripts, and then they produce books that we're, we're passing out. So then, what happens from there? You get your Bible in English. The translators that know Greek and Hebrew take those books that the textual historians have worked through and compared and produced those. They take those and then produce an English Standard Version, a New American Standard, a New International Version. They produce those into English now. So that is a big picture of how we go from Paul writing to the Romans. It's copied throughout history, shared around. We're finding these manuscripts, and then we're comparing them, and we're reconstructing Here's the 99 point something percent that all say it this way. This is what Paul wrote. It gets put in those books, and English translators then make English translations, Spanish translators make Spanish translations, and so on and so forth. Join us next time as we'll actually dive into the evidence from the manuscripts that help prove the Bible is true. Thank you for listening to Truth and Faith. Please consider following the podcast, sharing it, and visit truthandfaith.com for more. Join me next time as we will now begin to look at specific evidence from the manuscripts of the scriptures that help us prove the Bible is true.